When you're lost in the darkness, look for the pod. Specifically, the Prestige TV podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network, where we're breaking down every new episode of HBO's The Last of Us. On Sunday nights, grab your battery and join Van Lathan and Charles Holmes for an instant reaction to the latest episode. Then head back to the QZ on Tuesdays for a deep dive with Joanna Robinson and Mallory Rubin. From character arcs to video game adaptation choices, story themes to needle drops, we'll parse every inch of this cordyceps-coated universe. Watch out for mouth tendrils and follow along on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to have an old pal of mine on the show. We actually were on the Writers Guild board uh, together years and years ago uh, fighting, for these, fighting for these writers in Hollywood. <laughs> fighting for them. Yeah. <laughs> fighting Pure, all the battles. Uh, champions. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll bring that Got up. 2004? Yeah, that was a yeah, long time yeah, ago. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, right up to before that strike, you know, and everything. Yeah, that's right. And uh, but you know, I've been a fan of this guy for so long. You know, he's written everything from the Hangover movies, scary movies, Chernobyl. I mean, look at that! <laughs> look at that! <laughs> look at that range. But there's something very exciting on TV right now on HBO called The Last of Us. Everybody's talking about it. It's like uh, it's really one of those zeitgeisty things too, you know, which is very cool. And the showrunner, executive producer, and mastermind behind all of this is Craig Mazin. Craig, welcome to Black on the Air, my friend. Uh, it's so nice. I every time I get to talk to you, I'm happy. I, I, I don't see you enough. We live close by. I know, I know. But we live our monastic lives, and we never. You know. And you, you used to have. I don't know if you still have that at your office in Pasadena. I know you had that for a long time. I did. I, I finally gave that one up. Yeah. Um, because uh, now I spend most of my life in Canada. So. Oh, <laughs> because is that where you shoot a lot of your stuff in Canada? That's that's where we shot The Last of Us, oh. and that's where we'll we'll be back again for season two. So, it's, it's like, did you, did you move your whole family up there? Do you have to do that? Or no, uh-huh. no. My oldest is you know twenty one and. Oh yeah. Doing her thing. And then my, my, yeah, I know. And my youngest, the one that was born when you and I were serving on the writers. That's what I'm thinking of your kids is so little. She is. Yeah. She's in her senior year of high school. Oh my God. So yeah, the, you know, they kind of live their own lives and everything, which is awesome. Yeah. That's great. Well, congratulations uh, on the show, man. It's, that's gotta be, You know, these things are kind of surreal when you're in the eye of the um, eye of the storm. I know all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's been um, incredible. I, I w- yeah. none of us were expecting this. I think I was mm. expecting, you know, to I was expecting the show to have you know quite a few people watching it just sure. because there's a pretty big built-in audience, you know, mm-hmm. video game. But not this. I don't think any of us were expecting this. Yeah. Well, let's describe what it is because I'm not a big video game player. You know, I wasn't familiar with it. So The Last of Us is based on a video game of the same name, right? Yes. Uh, that came out 2010, maybe? Uh, 2013. 
2013. Okay. How would you describe the type of game that it is for people like me who don't know how to describe these types of games? Sure. Well, it's mm-hmm. a it's a survival game where survival. you're fighting against bad guys and you're fighting against infected people. For the specific, it's basically uh, we describe these things as single player campaign games. Meaning single player campaign games. Okay. Right. Got so it. you're you're not in the game playing against other people online uh, trying to kill you it's you're you're the only human moving around in terms of who's controlling things and it's a third person um i guess that's a like, third person view meaning you can see all uh-huh. of joel who's the character you control the person that you're controlling to, you can see that person you right. can see them you can see their yeah. whole body as they move as right. opposed to a first person well often they call them first person shooters uh-huh. where it's fully your perspective and you see like a gun in front of you. That's Hand like Halo or something like that. Yeah. Right. Or, or was call of duty that first person type of thing? Call of duty is definitely a first person. Okay. shooter. Yes. Got it. Got yes. it. Got it. And uh, when did these types of games first come around? Cause the technology, I went back and looked at a video, you know, of the game itself, but I think it's yeah. an updated the game. So it's like a yes. newer version, but it's still fascinating because they're, you know, there's a whole story being told in these types of games, right? There is. And some games are, some games are what they call quest based games where mm-hmm. there's a main storyline, but then you meet people and you have these little side stories that you can do. And it's, there's a lot of little narratives and one main okay. narrative, but a, the, the last of us was a pretty, it was a more traditional uh-huh. We're going to tell one story and okay. you're going to do on one kind of main quest line, I guess you can call it. Mm-hmm. But what was different about the last of us, and it was evident within the first five minutes of playing mm-hmm. was that the game was first and foremost about relationships mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. about, um, some fairly profound things, the nature of love mm. and father daughter kind of starting with that. Right. Uh-huh. There was, yes. Yeah. And there's loss and yeah. there is a question of protectionism mm. versus, you know, a kind of outward pro social nature. I mean, there are all these like fascinating things. And inside of all those things were moments that were just drop jaw beautiful. And Mm-hmm. It made me feel things. It made a lot of people feel things. I mean, this is a game where people have tattooed things from the game on their skin. Was it was it really like big popular when it first Massive. came out? Yes, it was. A, it was and it was, uh-huh. it, you know, and it won every award and deservedly mm-hmm. so. Um, and for many years, Neil Druckmann, the guy that created the story for the game, tried to adapt it into a movie. And you and I both mm. know <laughs> that the moment you start adapting something in a movie, you're already running out of pages. You get about 120 maximum. There's no way to fit that story yeah. into that. And so all these years go by and, you know, now we're making a show. Yeah. And how did you get involved with it? And when you first were playing it, but were you, were, were you always a fan of video games and were you playing these types of games when you first did oh, yeah. it or, or was this a newer experience for you? No, at the I've, time? Been, I've been a gamer since I was, since my dad brought home the Atari 2600 in 1978 or so. Wow. I remember that. I still think uh, Missile Command is still one of the all time greatest games. I mean, when you talk about 
It is the apocalyptic yes. scenario that you're guarding I mean, against. Yeah. That's all we've done is make these things graphically and narratively more complicated. <laughs> no, you know? It's all missile it's command. All missile when command. You go back down to, yeah. <laughs> Such a great idea for a game too. Missile command uh, had the rolling ball controller, which is gone. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. exist anymore. But wow. um, yeah, I've yeah. always played video games. And Chris Morgan, who's a friend of mine, he um, he does all the Fast and Furious movies. Okay. Um, he, he's also a gamer and he was like, dude, got to play the last of us. And I'm like, uh, I don't really love zombie games, <laughs> you know, which I would imagine a lot right. of people in their homes when they heard about our show are like, eh, I don't really like zombie shows, which I totally get. Right. And he was like, no, 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 no dude, 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 dude. It's not as you got to play this. It's, it's going to make you feel stuff. I'm like, All right, challenge, challenge accepted. It'll make you feel it stuff. It did <laughs> make me feel stuff. And wow. so, you know, you know, Larry, the way Hollywood is, it's sort of like, oh, you you write comedy? Well, you can stand over there in the clown room. <laughs> it's just, exactly. They don't understand. Exactly. And you're almost punished for being successful oh, at completely. it. completely. You know? Because <laughs> right. they're like, it's like in baseball, I always say, if you're a left-handed, if you're a left-handed pitcher who can throw 98 plus. Yeah. You're you're gonna be out there being a left-handed specialist. That's what you do. They bring you out there. You face the Absolutely. bad lefty. You get him out. You sit back down. Your day is done. They won't let you do other things. Mm-hmm. You you don't want to be a shortstop if you want. They're like, we'll, we'll take you over here doing what you do. And that's it's like, right. oh, you, you're making money or in comedies. Well, you stand over there with the clowns, and yeah, we'll, we'll never take you seriously. And you know, there's no awards. Don't give away. It's just like in in movies. If you write a comedy, you know, like literally, there's no chance you're going to win anything. It's amazing to me how much respect comedy can get on television yes. and get zero respect in film. And that is fast. You're absolutely right. And it, and I don't know why that has never really changed. You know, at mm-hmm. least the Golden Globes has kind of yeah. a, a category. Yeah. You know. Uh, of that, but it doesn't get recognized. No, like yeah. the the Oscars don't give comedies awards by and large. I mean, there are occasional exceptions, you know, Tootsie. Um, but but generally speaking, they don't, which is bizarre to me because it's so much harder to write comedy than it is to write drama. Take me for example. <laughs> I was working in comedy for a long time. I didn't win crap. Right. <laughs> and yeah. I switched over to TV. Where I should say, Larry, there is one major difference, yeah. and that is I'm in charge. Exactly. That's why I've been to yeah. for so long. It's yeah. kind of nice. Yeah. And lo and behold, um, you know, the drama is is taken more seriously. But I try to cast people who are also funny. You know, so Bella Ramsey, Pedro Pascal, yeah. Nick Offerman, Murray Bartlett, amazing. They're cast. funny, and yeah. they're funny, and and funny people I think are better at drama than drama people. Is is that your way into some of these dramas, Craig? Is you're looking for the humanity through like your sense of humor? Yeah. Do you do you see things that I way do. oftentimes? I do. Well, to the extent mm-hmm. that life is absurd, existence is right. absurd, and certainly the scenarios we're showing on on television are often extreme. Having a sense of humor, I think, is in a normal human reaction. Um, yeah, and there's a soulfulness, I think, to there's just a soulfulness, I think, to funny people. The, uh, a yeah. lot of comedy, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, comes from hurt and pain mm-hmm. and a kind of uh, observational acumen, you know, like 
I think funny people yeah. see things. That's why they can point them out. <laughs> it's like, like you, right. Cause that's what we're talking right, about. Like right? you, you right. can't have observational exactly. humor if you're not observational. And so exactly. You know, I think exactly. it's, it's, there's something pro- Vince Gilligan is, does this all the time. I mean, look yeah. at how he cast Love Breaking Vince. Bad. It's amazing. So and then Better Call Saul. It's amazing. The guy's just, it's he's brilliant. the best. He's the best. He's casting some of the funniest people, yeah. Brian Cranston, yeah. Bob Odenkirk. Man, Brian Cranston, he's so just a funny person yes. too. Well, you know? and just like the um, balls on the guy to be like, I'm yeah. gonna make a drama and I'm I'm casting the dad from from uh Malcolm from in, the in the middle. Yes, right. exactly. And he's like, Who? And you're like, yeah. he's like, don't worry, because funny people, I mean it, and he's oh man, Brian Cranston, how good is he? Uh He's the mm-hmm. best. Yeah. What's, what's the biggest challenge then in adapting a video game to a show, um, for you? And, and were you, did you have moments where you're like, what did I get into here? I mean, <laughs> well, or, I always had know, those moments. Or, or was it the opposite where you're like, this is a treasure trove. You know? Well, it was a treasure trove. I, uh-huh. I, all of my, uh, moments come from just being me. <laughs> And, you know, yeah. questioning everything. Like, why did I sign up for I, this? I, <laughs> I, I, was, I knew exactly why I signed up for it. It was more like, am I good enough? You know, I, it's always just, am I good enough? Sure. Am I good enough? But, uh, um, they, yeah. by the way, everybody out there listening, Craig Mazin just said those words. Yes. Listen to that. <laughs> this is, an, a, you know, a brilliant writer as far as Thank I'm you. concerned. Just said that. Uh, so just so I mean, you know. Not, I'm not just saying it. I feel all the time. <laughs> I'm like, am I good Oh, I feel it every yeah, day. Yeah, like, it no, never goes it away. It doesn't go away. Yeah. Well, if it does go away, I think you're in trouble, probably. Um, yeah. But uh, the no, the source material was incredible. It's incredibly narrative. It was a great mm-hmm. story. The challenge yeah. in adaptation um with anything I think is to figure out primarily what about this source material do I want to just port over and, and represent mm-hmm. in a new medium? What about the source material mm-hmm. is something I love inside the source material, but necessarily won't be as interesting in this new medium. And then mm-hmm. where in the source material are there opportunities for me to do something mm-hmm. that they couldn't do? So with the game, there were a couple of things that we knew we could do differently just because we were in a different medium. Gameplay wasn't so the, so much of gameplay is, is trying to figure out how to get through obstacles, bad guys. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we call them NPCs, non-player characters or environmental puzzles. And that's the, the story there. Whereas on television, nothing would be more boring than, watching a character spend five minutes figuring out how to get through a window. That's a little too high. Um, yeah. So we had opportunities to do other things that, um, maybe would be more compelling. And then Mm -hmm. we also had the ability to shift perspective because in the game, you're Mm -hmm. controlling a character. That means you're always, everything is through the experience of that character. Whereas we can, we can go off and be anywhere we want with anybody. And that opened up certain arenas. But one of the things that helped me was that I was making this adaptation with Neil who made the game. And Mm. Neil is, I think unique in as much as in addition to being an incredibly talented guy, he was not precious at all. He did. he, Mm. He never did the thing of, of no, but in, I, I like the way I did it. You know, <laughs> he was, 
he was sure. great about just saying like, what would make the best, the last of us show. And there were times where I had to be like, no, 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 I want to do it. Like the game here. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't make any changes. I like the way you did it. I want to keep it that way. Yeah. You know? Um, what, how do you decide what's necessary to keep and what can be discarded? Because you are, you're also dealing with not just the possible ego of the person who created it, which is fine. That's understandable, as you say, you know, um, but a fan base, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you know, you know, you're up against that too. I don't know how much you think about that. I mean, I think some of it you go, yeah, I understand. But I think when you're doing it, you just kind of have to put it aside for the most part, but and there's still some of that where you don't want to betray that fan base. right? Yeah. I certainly don't want the fan base to feel like this isn't for them. You know, I want, obviously you can't get everybody, but it's certainly the intention was to make a show that people who hadn't played the game would really enjoy. Mm -hmm. And people who had played the game would also enjoy it's, it's, it's an interesting, Mm -hmm. you're making a, a, like a thing for two different kinds of people who will see it probably two different ways. Yeah. It's a little tricky. It's a little tricky to do, but you, Mm. well, start with be a fan yourself. That's the most important thing. I think a lot of projects, I mean, you, how many times have you gotten this call where they're like, we bought this thing because a lot of people seem to like this thing. And we would like right. you to turn this thing into a movie because we think it will make us money. <laughs> like that's, right. it's a perfectly right. fine way for business people to start something. It's a terrible way to, for sure. an artist to start. And yeah. so you have to love the thing yourself and be a fan yourself and then follow mm-hmm. your fan heart to say, okay, what mm-hmm. would hurt if I didn't see it? What would, what would I, what would mm-hmm. it kill me if I missed it? And then what would I be sad if they, distorted it or, you know, just took change the basic meaning of it. And then right. what would I be kind of fascinated to see? What are the areas sure. that they didn't do that? Maybe watching those things would be interesting. And, and where are some things where if I change them, like this last episode we did was a big departure from the game. Big. So the Bill and Frank episode was uh. Nick Offerman. An amazing oh, episode, you. by the thank way. You. That yeah. is, and Nick Offerman, if he doesn't win an Emmy for that, yeah, right. I mean, well, I kind of. Right, I'm watching it, going, "This is an award-winning. This is amazing. This journey that he was so good, and he's funny, but he's like, you know, you don't know what to make of him. There's, uh, oh, it was really, really thank good. You. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I think he and without and, giving any spoilers away, just know that. Watch the episode. You <laughs> that's guys. not a spoiler. <laughs> that's an ad. I like that. No, thank right. you. Um, yeah. He, yeah. Nick Offerman and, and Murray Bartlett were both. Um, yeah, they're both. They, excellent. There should be some yeah. sort of shared Emmy that they can get. Um, but you, you go, you, you to talk about that yeah. for a second. So that's your uh, giving yourself room to say, okay. Yeah, we got the game, but let's have some side space here because I want to open up how I want to tell the story. Is that the thinking behind doing something like that? Yeah, and to the extent that here's stuff that we can do that the game couldn't. Mm -hmm. Let's be brave and do it. And so there is the character Bill in the game. um, And Frank is alluded to. You never meet him. Uh, When you do find Frank, he's dead. And Bill and Frank were partners, but split up quite a while ago and bill is rather bitter and frank leaves a note behind that is the most bitter note ever which is basically like i'd rather 
you know, hang myself and spend one more day with you. And in the game, I, it, it made sense for that to be the way they did it because you had to meet Bill through the character of Joel. You had to go there and meet him. Right. And there was a mission about getting a car battery. It's, and its purpose is to serve more of as a clue type of thing, or maybe as a information for you to achieve something else yeah. as opposed to dramatic well, content. There was, right? I think a, there was a, a, a dramatic intention to say, Hey, Joel, if you can't open your heart back up to another person, you're going to end up like this guy. And, oh, and that was valuable, but we had an opportunity to do something much different. And in talking with Neil, my feeling was, I think we need, well, after the first two episodes, I think we need a breather because the first two mm-hmm. episodes were pretty intense and there was a lot of tragedy. And also I think we need to be able to show the audience that, that you can win that basically in this world, two people can care about each other and can care about each other successfully all the way until they reach, you know, the old age. And then if they decide that they want to go to bed and sleep together forever, uh, then so be it. But it was important for the audience to know that's possible because it is ultimately a story about this man who has to kind of reopen his heart to, mm-hmm. to another human being. And if all we do is just show punishing <laughs> examples of failure around him, I think it's harder for us to root. I think knowing that you can do it and seeing mm-hmm. the letter that Bill leaves behind for Joel, it's like, Hey, you have a job to do, do it. And yeah, you, Bill thought that the job was to protect one character while she's dead. The job is now to protect this kid. And so Neil was great. He was like, go for it. And I wrote the script and I sent it to him and he was like, this, this is awesome. And that's why he's awesome because he gets it. That's great. Collaboration. Uh, I I found it interesting though, too, is that, you know, the show or the video game when it was done, was kind of based on the scenario of a, global pandemic, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, and, and before it airs, guess what? You got to go through a global pandemic. Yeah, yeah. How has that experience been for you? Uh, does it make you look at the show a little differently? Does it feel a little different now having been on both sides of that? Well, one of the things that became kind of clear to me was that we needed to acknowledge to the audience that we know that we all just Mm -hmm. went through a pandemic. And that's why I wrote this, the opening scene of the first episode is this talk show from 1968. And I love that part, part, thank you. And part of that was to say to the audience, we're all junior epidemiologists at this point. We, I mean, compared to what people knew about pandemics five years ago to now, we're all really much, much smarter and informed. <laughs> it's so true. And, and I needed to say to the audience, well, I'm aware, we're all aware. However, there's something worse than a viral pandemic. And a fungal pandemic mm-hmm. would be much worse. Um, and once you get to the modern day time of the show, the, the timeline of the show where this has all happened, it's not so much about a pandemic anymore because it's over the fungus mm-hmm. one, <laughs> we, we're, you know what I mean? Like if we got to a place where it, it was that bad, there's no, no one talks about it anymore. Cause it's just life now. That's just it. It's so that mm-hmm. is a very different mode than the mode we're in now, which is 
we got hit really hard by this virus and then we punched back as hard as we could and we're still here. I see that you changed the timeline a little bit, which is interesting mm-hmm. too, uh, to go back to 2003 rather than 2013, which now there's a kind of harmonic convergence with 9-11, you know, and terrorism and that type of thing, which to me it seems kind of interesting because 2013 is just kind of not really connected to anything <laughs> 2013 like that. 2013 is, you know? is not long ago enough to be a time period. Whereas, I mean, look, the one thing that's great about moving this, the apocalypse to 2003 is that it means that you and I never had to serve on the writer's guild board. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's start naming the names of the people. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so much trouble. Just avoid it. Um, This is a decent change, right? Like, well, end of the world, getting out of service of the writer's guild. Ooh, that's the strike. Yeah. Never happened. Strike never, yeah. strike never happened. Like, we <laughs> permanent strike from that point forward. I What's just, interesting. The world was drastically different though, too, you yes. know, just the way we, um, engage with technology, like the smartphones weren't around then, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at it and go, Oh, people just kind of were okay being with themselves maybe for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was actually fascinated kind of looking at that, just seeing how you guys were playing that and everything and just looking at behavior. I find things like that really interesting. Yeah. You know? it, it was it was fun to sort of sit with Nico Parker, who played uh, Joel's daughter, Sarah. She was great. Yeah. She's amazing. And, and just go, okay, okay, so let me bring you back to 2003. <laughs> when you were not born yet and i'm gonna <laughs> and oh, i'm gonna tell you what it was like yet. Oh. yeah so like when you wake up in the morning you're not checking your phone you don't have one <laughs> and that's it right and your alarm is a clock <laughs> that you set and right there's you've got your radio your radio is over there in the corner it's like a little boom box sitting out Cal- calendars on calendars the wall, on the wall. <laughs> watches are really yeah. important and they're not, mm-hmm. and not because they're Rolexes or Apple watches, but just you, you otherwise you won't know what time. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. That's, you know, that's the whole story. You, your world isn't in your hand. Your world is in front of you and Which around you. I have to say mm-hmm. makes the collapse of things scarier. Yeah. Because. Yeah. Because we never got to that point too, right. which is like interesting. You, you wake up in the middle of the night things are very, there's explosions and helicopters. Your dad's not there. Mm -hmm. You can't text him. So, Mm -hmm. you know, now you, and you're, it's, it's just, I don't know. The world felt darker back then. Like when it was night, Yeah, nighttime was darker. It was almost, yeah, it was kind of claustrophobic. I mean, you couldn't go on Twitter and see what people were saying, you know, that type of thing. No idea. Yeah. You have no idea what's going on. Yeah. A gift <laughs> also, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, but it, it is interesting that I, I, I proposed that switch because I did want the viewer now to be watching a show that was taking place in 2023. I thought that was just more compelling. I sometimes struggle when a show, you know, cuts to a thing and, the, and it says, you know, the year 2070. And I'm like, eh, well, you know, we're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> and something about yeah. be like living side by side, you know, like you said, a parallel universe. We're mm-hmm. here, and then right over here at the same time in 2023, this is happening. Yeah, sliding doors type of thing is always interesting, you know, to see what uh, what might have happened in those scenarios. And what's nice is that 
And I assume you're going to be using this a lot too, is you're able to flash back and tell some more stories during that period from different perspectives. Yeah. Right? And we, so we did that as well at the beginning of the second episode to, um, well, primarily to point out that, uh, the world is larger than America, which I think we often forget. Yeah. Um, and that, and to underscore how global this was, you go to Thailand. I think you go to Thailand. Is that what uh, was Indonesia. in that episode with the, a, or Indonesia with the doctor? Yeah. That was fascinating. I love, by the way, I love these little flourishes. They're really interesting, you know, cause you're right. It takes you away from just a chase scenario or killing zombie scenario. Yeah. And you, you're getting a little more context just to how the world engages with these types of issues, you know, to see more of a government that's already authoritarian, authoritarian, yeah. you know, it's already that it doesn't need the yeah. <laughs> this scenario to become that yeah. in some ways, yet there's humanity there also happening as well. You know, every enemy we show you at some point, we're going to show you another side and make you wonder. Yeah. And it doesn't matter yeah. who it is. It was something that Neil and I were committed to was, but um, part of the show is, is exploring how quickly our love for people can turn into us versus them. And that's yeah. like the idea that if you, if you just scratch at racism for a while, you'll get to love. It's a love that's gone mm-hmm. wrong. You know, it's my people, people that are mine, my tribe, my family, my kids, xenophobia, scratch, 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 love. But it's that love that turns to fear and then that protectionism, it gets twisted into anger. And that's I, what I find fascinating about love is it is the most powerful human emotion. And lo- we know love make, makes people murder. We know that. There's a whole category of murder for it. And mm-hmm. uh, love makes people do insane things and also beautiful things. And it, it's just the, the paradox of like, okay or the, 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 the dilemma, how many people like to keep my family alive, how many people would I allow to die? Because my family's worth more than your family. <laughs> and that is something that love tells us. And it's very primal. It's, it's genetic and it's scary. And so we, we try and poke at that as much as we can. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, and how it exists, and you've already shown how it exists in different forms. Uh, how many episodes are, have did you guys do for this uh, season? Nine, nine. Okay, so over that nine, do you is is that one of your major themes here, Craig, or or what are some of the things when you look at the nine of what you feel like you were kind of setting out to accomplish that, and and are you at the end of something at nine, or or is the is it, is this more, cause I'm not familiar with the part two. Mm. Is it, is this more of an open-ended type of story that is more cliffhangery? So it's kind of two questions. I apologize. Yeah. They're, they're, no, no, but, of course. Let's just talk about theme first. Uh, yeah. What's, is there a broader theme to this that you feel like you're working yeah. out over these nine episodes? Is love one of them or? It's, it's the major one is mm-hmm. what, what is the, what does love do to us? Uh, mm-hmm. is love worth it? <laughs> um, is love always a good thing? And we, I think what's beautiful about the game and what we really tried to incorporate into the show was that there is no easy answer to this. This is not, mm-hmm. this is not a show where we're going to tell you at the end, here's how you ought to live. 
it's a story that is going to com- continually challenge our sense of what is right and fair when we are deeply in love with another person, whether it is a parental love or it's a romantic love or even a communal love, a love of community. Mm-hmm. What is, what does it do for us? That's good. And where does it hurt us? And, and to continually also, I challenge the audience to ask, what would I do in that circumstance? Mm-hmm. Because it's not that I'm not interested in stories that don't have a fucking point. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like there's gotta mm-hmm. be a point. It can't just be, Oh my God, there's radiation. <laughs> you know, there has to be a point that yeah. we in watching it go, I understand why watching the story mattered. There was, there was a point here. Um, so we definitely are going to scratch at that and, and it's going to become more and more of an explicit theme as we go, but there is an end. I mean, the, the, the story that Neil created, there was no sense of like, okay, we're made five part story and this is part one of it. It was, this is a standalone story that begins and ends. And then years later, he made a second game, which I think is terrific. And mm-hmm. so that kind of starts with the same characters, but later on and a new story cycle begins, but Mm. writing, I don't know how to write stuff without an ending. I, I, I'm not very good at thinking serially like that, you know, or the idea is that we run for eight or nine or 10 or 15 seasons. I'm not, I am not tickle. (laughs) I don't know how that shit works. (laughs) I just need to know what the end is. And I write it. It's because he doesn't write beginnings, so you don't need oh, him. There you <laughs> go. It's just it's all the middle. It's all middle. <laughs> yeah, it's all middle. That's it. Part of his genius. Just write the middle, motherfucker. You don't need beginnings in him. <laughs> uh, he's, he's sitting on a, a dragon's hoard of money right I now. I'm so not he, mad he at him something. at all. No, I ain't a, mad at all. He wins. Yeah, but uh, you know everything that you said is it's very good and inspiring to me. I would think the one of the challenges is, yeah, but there's also zombies in this. Mm. Like, like, how do you make sure that that's not ridiculous? You know what I mean? Like, like it doesn't become yeah. absurd in a bad way. There's absurd in a good way, but I think absurd in a bad way. Where it's like, okay, stop it, zombies, stop it. Yes, <laughs> you know, yes. Like, um, you, you know what I mean? Because yeah, uh, I, like the Nick really, Offerman episode is so beautiful, but it's like. But a zombie might come in. (laughs) It's like, how does that, how do you like juggle that balance, you know, of of that, you know, because it is absurd. Yes, of course. I mean, any science fiction, the fiction part is that's where it's like science and fiction. How do you smash those things together? (laughs) And and the, the audience is used to that world, which is a good thing. Like zombies don't shock people anymore. They, they, people probably have, I'm not a big zombie fan, but people, I'm sure they have their rules for zombies that they have in their heads and all that stuff. So how, how do you look at that, Craig? Well, don't fuck up zombies. Yeah. I'm not like, I don't love zombies either. It's not, I haven't Mm -hmm. been like a a huge, you know, George Romero fan. I I mean, I've watched Mm -hmm. those movies. I don't not like them. It's just that I, I wasn't like, Oh my God zombie this and zombie that one of the things that we stressed as we went through the process of 
creating all these infected people with prosthetics, uh, a lot of prosthetic work by um, Barry Gower uh, runs a team out of the UK and, and he worked on Chernobyl and he worked on Game of Thrones and mm-hmm. it's, they're the best. So how do we actually show that these aren't zombies? The zombies are people that die and then come back up out of the ground. These right. are sick people. They are profoundly sick people. Mm. Don't lose touch with that. And, and then make sure that when our characters encounter them, that the encounters are either a small and terrifying or B perhaps much, much bigger, but either way, the crucible of dealing with those infected people is has to inform character and relationship. We have to learn things about our characters. There's so Ellie encounters an infected man in the basement of Cumberland farms. And we learn something about her through her confrontation with him. Similarly, when we see Bill, Nick Offerman's character watching an infected guy, you know, stumbling around and on, on his property, he's, we learn something about him, <laughs> which is how he deals with them and how um, vaguely amused he is by how superior he is to them. And in all of the sequences, even the first, the, our first big infected sequence in the, in the current timeline, when Joel and Ellie and Tess are in this museum and they face these two uh, creatures called clickers, we learn that, Joel's instinct to protect her is already there. So finding like character and relationship payloads inside of action sequences is how I connect to them. I don't, I, I don't know how to write action sequences. that are just action. I would, I think I would bore myself to tears and then everybody else. Yeah. I think another interesting thing now, cause now I'm thinking, uh, morality and, and theme and all that kind of stuff where, This is people are sick, as you say, but the solution to that many times is just shoot them. (laughs) That's a big moral issue there. You know, like, are we supposed to treat these people that are sick? I mean, are we do we have compassion for them? Are we to be afraid of them? Are they a threat? Like, what is what is the nature of sick, you know, and how we deal with sick, I think, is an interesting issue uh yeah you must be a writer or something because that, <laughs> sorry, sorry that shit's coming <laughs> I know. yeah yeah no, that's suddenly coming oh good 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 because i'm oh, like yeah. i would think you'd have to wrestle with that if if the oh, of course if you're talking about sick as opposed to strict zombie where there's rules you die but you're not dead and you come back well yeah. that's easy to shoot but if you're talking about humans that are suffering you know uh, when i was watching the person who played the the game and he showed that there was one scene in the game where he comes across a guy who's under something and he ends up shooting him and he goes, you know, I probably should have helped him. <laughs> he says, yeah. He says, I wonder if I should have helped him. You know, it's like, I'm like, that's fascinating. What an interesting question, you know? Well, it's, it's something we absolutely confront and it is one of those things where, you have to ask difficult questions, but we definitely mm-hmm. confront the fact that this is a disease and we confront what it means to get sick. And we confront mm-hmm. how, what our instinct is when we understand someone's sick. And mm-hmm. that is definitely part of this. I mean, in the second episode, Ellie asks Joel, 
when have, you know, have you killed infected? And he says, yes. And she asks him, was it hard knowing that they were people once? And this notion mm. that we don't yeah. know what's happening in their minds. Mm-hmm. Um, are they aware? Are they inside desperately trying to not do what they're doing? How, what is their existence? Is it hellish? Is it every single day? Are they aware? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that, uh, that wonderful movie awakenings, mm-hmm. uh, with Rob Williams and Robert, Robert Williams, De Niro. Yeah. Robert De Niro, yeah. And there is this, so it was about people who had this, um, you know, degenerative, uh, brain disorder and they just stop moving. So they become catatonic mm-hmm. and, and there's a moment where Robin Williams is talking to this old doctor played wonderfully by Max von Sydow. And Robin Williams says, do you think they're aware in their bodies that this is happening? Are they stuck in there trying desperately to get out, but their bodies won't allow them to, to do that. And Max von Sydow says, no, <laughs> and Robin Williams is like, well, how do you know? And he, and Max von Sydow says, I don't, but the alternative is unthinkable. You know, mm. that notion that they might still be in there is heartbreaking, heartbreaking. Yeah. So we, we, yes, we will definitely go with that for sure. Is there not having seen the whole game and what's coming up and everything? Um, Cause I always view like the invention of religion was that, you know, was if there's nothing after this, this is really bad. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I can yeah. take the yeah, futility this. of this if there's yeah. nothing else. Do yeah. you, do you guys deal with religion at all or that, or, you know, does anything like that ever come up? Cause we it'd be not interesting. Deal, yeah. Not yeah. in this season, but we are absolutely going to be dealing with it in the next season. That is. Cause sometimes is, people either choose a replacement or, mm-hmm they have to abandon it because they have no choice. It's, it doesn't serve the purpose that it served, you yeah. know, when you're not in that kind of scenario. Well, you know what? I should take it back. We absolutely deal with it in this season. I take it back, okay. but not, well, we touch upon religion mm-hmm. in this season for sure. Um, we're going to meet some people who are very religious. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there is a more complete and thorough exploration of religion in the next season, mm. but in, in both this season and next season, the part of the exploration is asking about the difference between people who believe because it brings them peace and comfort and wisdom mm-hmm. and people who don't necessarily believe, but are ordering society around this belief system. Mm-hmm. So the, it is that question of spirituality versus order. And we're, we're absolutely going to be looking at that. Um, because man, things can go bad inside of those. When you've lost order, all you have left is spirituality. And is that serving a purpose? You know? Well, and that's the interesting, we will see this over and over that there are communities we're going to see it twice in this episode in the season. And we're certainly going to see it, see it next season. There are communities that organize themselves around an ideal, something beautiful and true. And then it just corrupts. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it, it, it's, it's like there are individuals that can inspire us all. And then the groups that organize themselves around that inspiration become corrupted. Yeah. And that is a fascinating thing to watch. And it ties right back into this whole us versus them. I mean, that's talk about love. Like I love God so much. Therefore I love the people that love God so much with me. And those people over there do not love God. And here we go. (laughs) It's on. It's on. (laughs) So true. What do you, do you think that more gave this for as a writer question or maybe a producer question? Do you think we're going to see more games developed like as a source for movies and TV shows? Is is that kind of an era we're just in right now? I think if we weren't, we are now because mm-hmm. you know how this town works. <laughs> yeah, like once it becomes successful. <laughs> yeah. Like so, I always tell people, people, you know, would ask me questions about racism and all that kind of stuff. Cause I get asked those questions. I go, let me tell you about Hollywood. The <laughs> only color that matters in Hollywood is green. Green. You know? If, if black is bringing green, thank you, black. You know, if whatever color brings green, that they are happy with that. But green, let's make no mistake, that is the most important color. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. Uh, it's amazing the shit that people will put up with if there's green coming oh, in. Uh, yeah, green? Yeah, they'll, absolutely. They'll whatever look you the other do. way. Yeah, don't look the other way. <laughs> um, yeah, it. That is true. Yeah, Hollywood is too greedy. They're too greedy uh, to let their racism drive them they're racist but but first they're greedy greedy first racist second (laughs) don't fool yourself to thinking hollywood is woke they are not (laughs) they are what they are whatever it needs to be to have green happening (laughs) Uh, correct i mean we're talking about very large corporations uh yes corporations aren't woke Corporations exist to enrich their shareholders, period, the end. Correct. Like when people always say, by the way, you guys, Craig and I, these are the these are the <laughs> discussions we had when we were sitting on the board. We were yeah. talking about this stuff all night. But like I always hate it when they would say, uh, uh, these companies, they're job creators. No, motherfucker, they're profit yeah. creators. Yeah. That's their purpose. That oh, yeah. Sometimes, as a result of profits, they create jobs. Sometimes. Yeah. But at a shareholders meeting, the question is, how many jobs did we create this month? No. The question is, what was our profit this this quarter? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And <laughs> and they get re- they get rewarded for cutting jobs. And Exactly. And, and if they can replace you with a robot, well, look at McDonald's. They're on their way. It's like, like the robots do it and they don't care. Nothing to do with ideology. Nothing, nothing, nothing nothing. nothing at all. I mean, we are, look, we could go on about how the Hollywood's greed controls things, but, uh, I I always use it in my, try to use it in my favor, you know, use their greed in my favor. Okay. Well let's get stuff done together then. Thank you. Thank you. Greed. That's how agents (laughs) work, right? Like I need you to be as greedy as possible to get 10% of whatever you can get. Yes, that's what I need. Like, because I don't know. Exactly. We're we're weak. If they're like, look, yeah, I mean, they, you know, Louis B. Mayer invented the Oscars to confuse uh, actors and writers into fighting with each other so that they would Uh. stop trying to unionize and fight with him. He was like, "Here's shiny shit. Go chase that and Uh. argue amongst yourselves." And it works every time. We we're needy because we're entertainers, and we you know we want to please. So it's important that we have people that advocate for uh, us. I know Laurel and Hardy were 
their contracts ended on different years. I remember. <laughs> that was the so here they are, a comedy team. So they were always like, against. so funny. <laughs> Isn't I mean, that hilarious? Oh, no, Laurel's contract is up this year. Sorry, yeah, Hardy. Yours yeah. is next year. We can only negotiate with yeah. him. So now for the next year, he's making so much more than you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, they're brilliant. I mean, they're absolutely brilliant. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings, maybe a getaway with the whole family. Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. You know, a lot of people who want to be Craig Mazin, that type of thing, sometimes sometimes tune into the pod here. So I always like to ask the question, so when did you want to be a writer? You did you you got a degree in psychology? Yeah, I was studying neuropsychology, which is more kind of like I'm in the neurology area. Right, with your famous roommate at Princeton. Yeah, with uh, yeah. the world's worst <laughs> freshman year roommate, Ted Cruz. Um, yes, that's right. The worst. Um <laughs> But it's funny, like I used to talk about Ted Cruz and everything. People now it's like we're we're all stuck with Ted Cruz. I actually I, I have no more claim to pain at this point than any of the rest of us. We've been dealing with this jackass for years. Probably I'll have to deal with him for a bunch of more years. Mm. Jackass. Anyway. Um yeah, I was gonna be I was pre-med basically, and my path mm-hmm. was that I was gonna be a doctor. And there was something about the entertainment business that felt so attractive to me, the idea of entertainment. Mm. I don't know. I was just so, it was undeniable to the point where I drove out to LA. I didn't, you know, I had my Toyota and I had about 1400 bucks that I'd saved up from working and I didn't know anybody. <laughs> and I, I just started calling temp agencies. I mean, that's how it starts. You know, I, wow. Just yeah, I got a, oh yeah. And I, and I got, I got a job because I could type, you know, they were real happy with that. Didn't care about my college degree. And That's hilarious. <laughs> I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to be a writer in part, I think because I came from such a like solid old school middle-class background. Not like when people mm-hmm. say middle-class today and they mean like, Oh, that daddy's not a full partner at the law firm. Like I'm like, no, no, my parents were public school teachers. They would call it working class now, but that was my, when Working I was young, my dad was a probation officer. There you go. Mom, Same deal. Worked for the, worked substitute for the government. teacher. Yeah. That's what mm-hmm. public school teachers and government employees. Yeah. And civil servants. Your dad, mm-hmm. civil servants. And so mm-hmm. in that world growing up, for me, the idea of, of being a writer was just what a, an idiot would want to do. Like only yeah. idiots <laughs> had that dream because nobody right. gets to be a screenwriter. Nobody gets to be an actor or a director or any of this stuff. So I was thinking like, well, maybe I'll be like an executive or something. You know, that seemed like a job you could get. And there was like a hierarchy, you know, you can move up and that was structure. I thought that was interesting, but I was working at this ad agency and, um, I wrote like some copy, you know, like to show the art, the, the creative director for, you know, trying like being, Hey, I'm just hustling, you know, and he liked it. And that was a, I was making $20,000 a year. And he said, okay, now you're making $27,000 a year, but you get your own office and you're a writer now. And that was enormous. Like, yeah, it was like one of those things where the world kind of tells you what you're good at. Mm-hmm. And that was it. I've been, you know, I sold my first screenplay when I was 25. Awesome. 
And that was it. I've been doing it ever since. That's so amazing. And how did you start Script Notes? That's your podcast where you talk about writing with John August. And do you guys field questions from writers or do you uh, think about, "Mm, here's a good topic we should be talking about? How how does it operate? It's usually both. Most episodes will have a topic that we discuss and then we'll shift over to listener questions because we have a lot of them. Um, Mm -hmm. And ultimately I think it's, it's good to say to people, Hey, look, this is something that we think you should know. But now that we've done that, here's stuff you want to know. (laughs) And it's good to, Mm -hmm. you know, do both of those things. But that started what, you know, I had a a blog back in the days of blogs. I remember that. Yeah. And I had gotten tired of, it's like we write all day as writers. I know. You have this other like free job writing a blog and suddenly you're like, it was like that early feedback loop that we all have on Twitter and so forth where people like what you say and start commenting. And so you want to, now you have a new audience and you feel the need to keep giving them, you know, stuff. And I, I was getting pretty weary of it. And John said, Hey, you know, cause John ran his own site and he's like, look, I'm thinking of kind of dialing back on that would you be interested in doing a podcast? And I was like, yes, but what's a podcast? <laughs> like, <laughs> it sounds kind of cool from the word. Um, and that was, I mean, so we have done, I think we're at like episode five eighty five or something like that. I mean, it's, That's amazing. It's been, you know, over a decade. Yeah. I know you've helped a, a lot of writers. It's such a good resource. It's what is the most, what would you say is the most common question or problem that, writers face with screenplays like what or you mean like a like craft wise yeah you know that they want advice about or they can't seem to to get right most of the time the one that they ask a lot about is voice you know they Mm, they know like because we'll say it all the time you need to have your own voice you need to Mm -hmm. write from you because like if you're just trying to, let's say, okay, here's what Larry does. I'm going to sort of write a Larry Wilmore ish kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, Larry Wilmore is writing a Larry. Wilmore. We don't need you writing it. <laughs> Larry, to write it. Larry has enough trouble figuring out what that is. <laughs> yeah, and also, exactly. Like me, Larry's like, uh, I'm not good. So it's like, what can you do that no one else can do? And what a mm. lot of people struggle with is they don't know what that is. And that's not an answerable question ultimately because either you're going to figure it out or you're not. And mm-hmm. writing isn't for everybody. Writing's for almost nobody. As far as I can tell, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not about, and I'm, I don't even think about it in terms of like, Oh, there's, we're so good and no one else is as good as we are. It's more like, it's like an on off switch. And then if, yeah. it's, if the switch is on, then you can get better with practice and time. Mm-hmm. I've been, trying, you know, to get better as I go, I'm still trying to get better and learn lessons, but the on switch is on. And for some people, I think it's just off and I don't know what to tell them. Yeah. It's a real, uh, it's an elusive thing. And I think one of the biggest mistake that I see many writers make is assuming that something that happened to them is going to be interesting to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, And it's like, so it's okay to observe something also. It doesn't have to be your particular story. It can be your observation of something, you know, right. it's a perfectly legitimate way to tell a story is having, a, and sometimes it's often better because it's 
being filtered through something else. Where sometimes you're a little too prejudiced when you're telling something your, that happened to you. Thing. Yeah. 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 It's a little bit like when people are like, Oh my God, I had the craziest dream last night. And they start telling you, you're like, Oh, this is so boring. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know your dream is exciting to you. Many times the personal stories are most fascinating for people who aren't writers. You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I, it's, but you're bringing up this interesting topic, which, you know, culture has been consumed with now for quite a few years. Yeah. And that is who gets to tell what kind of story. And yeah, that's a big one. That is a big one. And, you know, I've always, and I believe this in my heart, there's no, it is, it's an impossible task to be a writer, especially a writer of fiction mm-hmm. and not create characters and give voice to characters that are not like you. It's just, I don't know right. how you do that task, but mm-hmm. And I say this as a guy that just put an episode of television on the air where, you know, two gay men have this lifelong relationship and I'm not a gay man, but the director was, and our producer was, and our editor was, and our script supervisor was, and one of our actors was, and the job that I have is to listen to them is to make, first of all, to make sure that people that can help me are being paid. That's number one. (laughs) Like if you are going to, you you need to do your homework when you're writing out of yourself, Mm -hmm. make sure people are paid and then give them room to say, you got this right, or you got this wrong, or this is great, but tweak this or tweak that and listen. Um, that's important. And so if you're a guy and you've written something and a woman says, I'm, I'm questioning why this woman is saying this or doing this listen, <laughs> you know, you have to be humble about it, but, but you get to do it. I, I don't I'm, Where do you fall on this topic? Well, for me, um, I generally agree with you, but I think a lot of it, I call it gaze, you know, G-A-Z-E. Gaze. Mm-hmm. Got it. Like, you know, because some people use the word authentic and I think it's the wrong word, you know, like color purple is there's nothing I don't find it inauthentic, but it is from a white gaze. Mm-hmm. I'll say, you know, to looking at that, it would be it would probably different from a black gaze. You know, now it's I should say a mixed gaze because it is Alice uh, Walker's work that is the actual script of it, but the but presentation of is, it. Yes, is, and I'm not yeah. mad at it. I thought he did a beautiful job. You know, so to me, I I'm not I'm not mad at you know someone wanting to tell a story outside of themselves, as long as, you know, people aren't shut out from being able to tell stories has always been my problem has always been my issue, not who's telling what story. The issue that comes up, who's telling stories because many times people weren't able to tell stories, (laughs) you know? Right. So yeah, you know, you know, in different groups and that type of thing, but generally as a philosophy, I, I think it is good to put yourself in something else and, and collaborate, as you rightly point out, it's not just one person doing it. It is a collaboration. Um, yes. And do that because the collaboration of it is good, you know, and I don't want to act like when I mean, when I said it before about telling your own story, I mean the the plot of something that happened to you, not telling right. something from your point of view, which is different, which I do think is important and valuable and necessary, you know, like, what is your take, you know, yeah. on something? It's different than what actually happened to you. So I want to make that distinction. You yeah. Know? I, and I think you're, you're touching on something important, which is 
that there is a way to tell a story from inside the characters and there's a way to tell the story that's outside the characters. Um, and I try as best I can to tell the story from inside the characters and particularly from inside the things that are universal to us all. Mm -hmm. And then if there are elements of the story that are specific to identity, you know, I do my homework and I read, but also some of it's just instinct. It writing mm-hmm. is like acting. You tell your brain to become a different person. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the big differences between writing and acting is acting. You tell your brain to become a person. And when we're writing, we're seven people at once sometimes. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, but you, but giving each person internality and agency and life and not denying what their particular identity gives them, you know, Mm -hmm. humility. I think it's just really important to just to be humble when you write characters and allow the fact that you may not fucking know everything and that other people might know more. It's important. (laughs) And when they, and and to not get defensive when they're, cause it's not like if someone's like, Hey, you know, this isn't exactly what a gay man would say, or, you know, as, Mm -hmm from a black perspective, what you've done here, the important thing is to not go, no, no, fuck you. Uh, I'm not racist. No one's calling you racist. dude. They're just helping you (laughs) take the help. Yeah. Yeah. I I think one of the easiest ways to see the example of that, especially when I mean gays is how much the history of film and movies is from a male gaze. And when you see female directors who get in that helm and how the perspective changes in subtle ways and drastic ways, how, how women are seen and portrayed male gaze versus female gaze, you know, can be drastically different and very informative, you know, and, each of those point of views can be interesting, but just the, you can see opinions about, you know, women <laughs> just snap out at you immediately mm-hmm. based on who's telling yeah. that particular. That's the gender part of it is almost more blatant and fascinating yeah. with the, the change in, in the helming of things, you know, it's kind of interesting. It yeah. is. And it's why I think, it's good. This guy's had such a long run too. You know? Oh yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> basically Hollywood was a long run of white men saying, here's how the world worked. And yeah. here's the stories we want to tell. Get in a bikini lady, get in a bikini. We need to see you. Always. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, that to me, there is a social justice component about making sure that people aren't locked out, but there is also artistic benefit. And this is the most important thing right. is that it's not, it's not like, Oh, let's let those people tell stories because we want to be nice to them. Let them tell right. stories. Cause we will get better stories. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yeah. We'll just get better good stories. stories. They're yeah, good story over the course, yeah. yeah. And over the course of like a television season, I get to have, you know, in our show, we have Muslims and we have women and we have people from different countries. Mm-hmm. We have gay people. We are bringing as many perspectives as we can yeah. And not necessarily going, okay, you're going to direct the episode about girls and you're going to buy business. It's really more like, often I would just say, which one of these do you want? Mm-hmm. And let them tell me, because I do feel like we all do our best work when we're doing something we want to do. Yeah. 
I think the the globalization of a lot of this is an interesting thing too. You know, yeah, I not love just that. American perspective. Yeah, no, that's that's like a thing that I think is so great for storytelling. You know, uh, I love seeing all these films like from around the world get attention during award season because we we can. I, I know about it now. I can go see it and see these different perspectives and people now working here and getting the credit for things. I think yeah. that's opening up creativity in so many different ways because storytelling is different from different regions. You know, the, yes. just the way people yes. choose to tell a story is different, let alone yes. the, the content, you know, and we've, it's the same thing that happened with food. Mm-hmm. Cause like when, when I was growing up, there was like Italian food <laughs> and <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and then there was just American food, right? Like, yeah, yeah. and then slowly you kind of begin to broaden. I mean, like people like growing up in the seventies, there was no sushi in the seventies. We didn't have sushi. <laughs> that wasn't a thing. We didn't even know what it was. And if anybody yeah, talked I think about it, I think a lot of those things started here in California first and then they branch out. It's kind of like your fungus. It just gets yeah. to other people. <laughs> it just spreads out of LA. <laughs> yes, like, exactly. There is this, we start to incorporate these things and expand our understanding of, of culture and the way things work. And for so long, foreign films meant French movies or Italian movies. That's now right. foreign films mean right. Korean films mm-hmm. or Japanese films or Russian cinema or Indian mm-hmm. cinema. And Absolutely. it's fucking awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. And they, they are different kinds of stories. Like I mm-hmm. love, I mean, Scandinavians make incredible films and we've been watching, I guess it's fair to say we've been watching Swedish films for a long time too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Their own kind of thing. And then when you look at what India does and you see like RRR and you're like, no one else is doing that. You Mm -hmm. know, no one, there's just this, it's a little bit like what we're talking about voice, like cultures have a voice and pulling. And now, so now my thing is like, let's keep going. Keep like, where have we not seen things from? How do we get things from there? That's that's what's interesting to me. Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, Craig, I so appreciate you being here and talking to you. I mean, I, we, I go on forever and I'm just talking about <laughs> stuff. But let me ask you a, a question about our union real quick before we go. Okay, <laughs> so, all right. <laughs> to see as best as you can. Uh, do you think there's going to be a strike this year? There's like, that's kind of in the air. Have you been paying attention to yeah, the issues? I, 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 my I, ear hasn't really been to the ground lately. Yeah, I've just been kind same. Of, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I think... Um, there's, it's hard to handicap these things because mm-hmm. I guess, are we allowed to say handicap anymore is like an odds making thing? Probably not. Sure. Uh, well, it has a different meaning that context of it has different meaning. Yeah. Hand, handicap in that meaning is how you're measuring, uh, different factors in their different ability to outperform other factors. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I would say that two balancing factors on, um, so the, one factor that would suggest maybe there won't be a strike is that the director's guild, um, since our strike in 2007, 2008 is negotiating first. Technically their deal expires afterwards, but they always negotiate early. So they, they are going to negotiate first. And if their negotiation is successful, that obviously will have a pretty large impact on what we do. Right. The factor for a strike, I think since the guild started striking in the, 50s, I think was our first one. Um, mm. Writers Guild has never gone more than 20 years without striking, as far as I can tell. Mm. And we're getting close. Mm. Uh, so it's a little bit like an earthquake situation where it's just, mm. you know, over time. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm kind of looking at like, I guess that's sort of a, 
Nate Silver sort of way of looking at it. It's not really getting into the issues as much as the meta, you know, what are the odds of something happening? Um, you know, I, obviously everybody, everybody wants labor peace as long as the, the deal is fair. And mm-hmm. if the companies kind of find a way to get a fair deal to us, then, you know, war. Uh, but uh, who doesn't root for peace? Everybody roots for peace. It's just got to be, it can't be peace at any price. Right. So mm. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I wish we had some version of a Chinese weather balloon we could send over to the companies. And <laughs> I, I really admire the balls. The Chinese are like, know. you know you can see it. We're doing know. it. <laughs> you know, like, it's we're so ballsy. It's, it's hilarious, that oh, weather balloon. Is, like, everyone's freaked out about the weather. All of the Republicans are like, we're going to shoot down the weather balloon, failing to understand that literally bullets do not go that high. But yeah, it's like, also, no, like, you know that there are these other weather balloons that are even higher up. They're called satellites. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. already doing this. Like, I know. We're, we're all looking at each other. This is not new. I think it's just yeah. the fact that it's a balloon is making them crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's like suddenly, what is this Sputnik? Like, what? Yeah. What is this? Nineteen fifty-seven? All of a sudden, <laughs> like we're yeah, looking at something money. slowly go across the sky and threatening yeah. us. You know, I love right? it. I think it's just like yeah. it's it's just saving money. The Chinese were like, "How's like one tenth of the price of a satellite? We just That's put a balloon hilarious. up there." It's but like they got it from like, Costco or something. You know, yeah. this hey, this hey, balloon. Where, yeah. where do all of our balloons come from? China. They've yeah. got a balloon factory. They can do this. Yeah, they're smart. <laughs> I, I, and by the way, I don't even know what they, they showed the path of the balloon. I'm like, what are they going to see exactly? They're going over <laughs> yeah. Ohio. What's it's going to be fine. Like they're not going to see anything cool. Who knows? It's yeah. pretty ballsy. Those motherfuckers, yeah. man. Yeah, no, they, 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 it's a good troll, you know, hats off. Solid troll. <laughs> yes, it is a troll. It's a that troll. is a solid troll. That I agree a solid with that. troll. Yeah. Uh, the last of us, you guys, uh, even if, you know, whether you like things with, you know, zombies or whatever, and different play games, I'm telling you, I'm not really a game player, but this thing is fascinating. There's so many issues in it. And like I said, this last episode was so good. It was just oh, really you. good storytelling, Craig. Congratulations Thanks, so much. Thank you. I wish you the, the best with the show. Craig Mazin, everybody watch the last of us. I think it's on Sunday nights on HBO. Sunday nights on HBO at uh, 9 o'clock Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. 6 p.m. Pacific on HBO. Thanks, Craig. Thank you, Larry.